You're listening to the Unmute Podcast with Maisha Cherry. Welcome to the place where philosophy and real world issues collide. Hello, and welcome to the Unmute Podcast. This is the place where I have the opportunity to talk to young diverse philosophers about the social and political issues of our day. Before we get started, I am so excited to let you know that if you like the podcast and you enjoy listening to the episodes, these conversations are now available in book form. The book is called Unmuted, Conversations on Prejudice, Oppression, and Social Justice, and it is published by Oxford University Press. If you're listening before March 1st, head over to Amazon and pre-order a copy. If you're listening after March 1st, I need for you to run to the bookstore or online and grab a copy today. You will not regret it. The book includes a foreword by Cornel West, illustrations of contributors, an informative glossary section, and lots of accessible and interesting conversations. Grab a copy today. Now let's get into the episode. Today I have the pleasure of talking with Laura Perez. Laura is a society fellow at the Society for the Humanities at Cornell University. Her interests include philosophy of mind, social philosophy, and social documentary photography. In this episode, we talk about what it means to see corruption, how inherent is corruption in social institutions, is a scroll through Instagram, a masterclass in corruption, and so much more. Hello, Laura, and welcome to the Unmute Podcast. How are you today? I'm doing good, Maisha. Thank you so much. How are you doing? I'm surviving. (laughs) I'm surviving. (laughs) Laura, I'm interested. How did you get interested in philosophy? Thank you, Maisha. Before before I start, I I want to to thank you for the opportunity of thinking with you uh, the topic of corruption and its visual perception. Also, I wanted to tell you that that public, independent, and collective philosophies is one of the projects that, that most excites me. So, so many congratulations for this uh, podcast. Likewise, likewise. Thank you. So I got interested in philosophy. So during elementary school, my sister and I returned home from school and we started to, to do our homework. And I remember my dad asked us to, to save all our homework questions and doubts so that we would talk about them when he returned home after work. And once at home, my dad would, would tell us how to investigate the answers to our questions. It, it was important for him not to give us the answer. It was, uh, I, I, think, I think both of my parents, they wanted us to see the value or the worth of investigation or inquiry. So I, I think we got interested in philosophy. And I say we because my sister is also a philosopher. Because of my parents, both come from economically challenged context. None of them are professional philosophers. But in my opinion, I think they are remarkable inquirers. And I think I'm increasingly interested in philosophy as a way of life. I, I'm interested in, in those inquiries that arise from practical dilemmas, uh, which are contexts or situations present. Okay. 
Sounds good. I uh, I met your parents before, so this makes me this makes me smile to know that they had an impact. A lot of people respond by suggesting professors or a class that they took, but it's so interesting to know and pleasing to know that it that it originated uh, from a family context for you. So, like you said, we're we're going to talk about perception, and particularly, I want to talk to you about what you call seeing corruption in social institutions. And I think before we get started, it's important to, to, like philosophers do, to get clear on some concepts first. So, I have a few kind of clarifatory questions, concepts that I want you to describe for us before we dig deep into some of your arguments. So, for you, what is what is a visual experience? Yes, thank you, Maisha. I. I so one way to address that question is to draw on particular intuitions that we have about our visual experiences and of course you can say Laura I don't share those intuitions so one one intuition is that our visual experiences gives us reasons to act to form beliefs even to modify our behavior and and to correct what we already believe. So suppose that you're driving and you see that the traffic light is red. You you are conscious of the traffic light and its red light. And and when when you are visually aware of the traffic light in red, you stop. So from the intuition that our visual experiences provides us with reasons to, to act, to form beliefs, to modify our behavior, to correct our beliefs, arises the question of what aspect of our visual experiences, the one that allows, and, and I would say more than that, that justifies the perceiver to act, to form beliefs, um, again, to modify behavior and correct beliefs uh, as a result of seeing something. Um, so that is one intuition that we have about our visual experiences. Another intuition is that our visual experiences do not only depend on what is before us, but also our visual experiences integrates information that we have learned in the past, in particular, previous experiences, previous perceptual practice. So we acquire a visual practical and theoretical knowledge after a period of, of familiarization or habituation of attending particular stimuli. So if, if it is the case that uh, the sensory aspect of our visual experience is modified as a result of past experiences or past perceptual practice, then our way to address the question of what a visual experience is, is uh, should reflect these uh, these perceptual modification that that happens as a result of of previous learning or previous experiences. Now, give us an example here. This the stop sign example was was very clear for me. Uh, give us an example to kind of amplify this point. So, so suppose if if we if we use the previous example, so suppose that that sometimes the traffic lights of your neighborhood do not work. In particular, the, the so say that, and this is not a hypothetical in, in cases in which in which the traffic lights do not work in, in neighborhoods here in Mexico. And and so so suppose that, that the red light stays 10 seconds longer than it is supposed to. So from learning this or uh, or, or as a result of learning this, your visual experience is is affected by this information that you learn about the traffic light. So so it is not only the case that that you're visually experiencing what is before you or or what what is that 
the uh, natural or, or the social environment presents you, but also part of, or a significant part of what is it that you're experiencing is is affected what uh, by is affected by by all this information that that you have learned or acquired in the past. So let's go to the second concept. Uh, what is a social institution? That, that may seem clear to a lot of people, but on your view, what is a social institution? Yes. So I I would say I would say that, and I have the same attitude with respect to the question of what uh, visual experiences. We do not have philosophers of perception and and social philosophers. We don't have a, a definite answer of what a visual experience is or or what a social institution is. But it's enough to point to have at hand particular problems in order to continue with the inquiry about what full experiences or what a social institution is. With respect to social institutions, we again have diverse intuitions. And, and again, you can say, I don't share those intuitions. Lower. But it, it is it is possible to think that um, institutions have some sort of end or purpose that there are uh, particular processes that fulfill such ends or, or purposes that social institutions have members and, and these members constitute and animate institutions by executing the processes that would fulfill the ends of the institution or the missions of the institution. So, for instance, one, one example is, is given by, by Tamas Miller, in 2010, he holds that the collective end of university, and I'm quoting him here, is, is the following. The acquisition, transmission, and dissemination of knowledge, both for its own sake as well as for the multifarious benefit, benefits that such knowledge brings to the wider community. In short, universities pro- produce a collective good. Good. I'm sorry. It is important to stress that knowledge in this context must be broadly conceived so to embrace not only information, but also understanding and the skills to acquire information and understanding, including the skills needed by the professions. So uh, certainly by, by focusing on, on ends, processes, and, and members of social institutions, we, we do not exhaust our intuitions about social institutions. Um, so uh, it, it is worth mentioning that characteristic elements of institutions also include conventions, social norms, um, rituals, and that social institutions themselves are considered constitutive elements of societies and, and cultures. I would say, Maisha, that the question that interests me about social institutions is their visuality or the ways in which ends, processes, and members are visually experienced. So, in uh, what I, what I, my, my current research, what, what I try to do is I interest, intersect uh, or connect particular problems in the philosophy of perception and problems in, in social philosophy. And to do so, I, of course, with respect to social institutions, and, and I mean, it would, it would depend, but I have been drawing on the relationship between ends and processes in the institution of, of the university and, and I have been drawing on, on the role of members as animators of the institution of family. There is an element to which I pay special attention in my analysis of social institutions and, and the intersections that I make 
between problems in the philosophy of perception and social philosophy, which is corruption. And yes, I, I think, I mean, among, among the many aspects of social institutions, the property or, or this aspect of corruption is it brings, a, or at least it has been a, a feature that, that generates a lot of questions. And for my research, it has been, it has been very useful, this term, to, to analyze what a social institution is and what a visual experience is. So let's talk about corruption. So your account of corruption is, is quite different from your interlocutors and probably for some folks it's quite different from their common intuitions about what they take corruption to be. So, so what is your account of, of corruption and why did you feel the need to kind of get away or to go away from traditional views of, of corruption, particularly among ethicists and moral philosophers? So to address the problems, the ways in which exemplars or cases of corruption appear uh, in order to address the problem on the visuality of social institutions, I include multiple phenomena. For instance, I'm interested in the corruption of a text. I, For instance, when, when I'm translating a text from English into Spanish, I'm in a way modifying or altering the, the original, I'm altering the, the original version in English. I'm also, in these multiple phenomena, I'm also interested in, of course, the corruption of institutional members. For instance, um, how is it that when I bribe a policeman, how is it that this event visually appears? And, and when I mention the case of translating a text from English into Spanish, I'm also interested in how is it that this alteration or modification of the original visually appears? And other phenomena that interest me is, is the corruption of bodies. For instance, when I modify or, or alter my body to, to become slimmer or to gain weight, how is it, how is it that this instance or, or case of corruption visually uh, appears visually? So, so I include tons of, of instances of corruption. I think my view which again depends on the on the intersection between problems in the philosophy of perception and social philosophy is orthogonal to the uh, moral and or legal study of corruption. I'm I'm interested in developing a view about corruption which focuses focuses on two properties: its visuality and its sociality. And and I think I think my view can definitely dialogue with with a moral or a legal view about corruption and. I mean, although it is different, my view does not aim to be incompatible with a moral or a legal view. And I, I think I'm interested in corruption and in, in this other, um, in this alternative way of thinking about corruption, because I, I, would, I would say that this interest arised from being habituated or uh, this familiarization that I have with uh, a very sophisticated culture of corruption. So Mexicans typically perceive their institutions as, as highly corrupt settings, yet, yet we are active collaborators and, and straighten a culture of corruption. I, I, I think that I think about corruption as, as, this, as this possibility or potentiality that phenomena uh, have. I, I think I think corruption shows this this principle of not following the norm. And if I may, like Maisha Sherry's view about anger, I think corruption is not a bad word. 
And I would say that I, I'm, I'm very skeptical of transparency systems which aim to erase phenomena of corruption or alteration as, as if we wanted to erase a possibility that natural and social phenomena have. So, yes. So when people hear the word, they, just to, to be clear here, to get understanding here. So when people usually hear the word in, in a moral sense, they think, oh, corruption, someone is doing something that they should not be doing. They're not following the rules and they're deceiving people in the process. And so you may find, as you alluded to, policemen taking bribes is an example of corruption, right? They're violating kind of a social norm. That's not the way that kind of policing institutions should work, right? They shouldn't be partial. They shouldn't be biased. They shouldn't be bought off, right? But then you talk about the translation case, which is like you define an alteration of sorts. And it's an alteration that's very much accepted in a sense, right? So like traditional views of corruption, as one may think, oh, they're violating a norm. And that's something that we do not want. But in the alteration case and translation cases, we do want translations, right? The Bible, for example, was a translated text and it became accessible and corruption happened in that sense, but we wouldn't condemn that. So is your alternative view or your additional kind of view of corruption, is it just the alteration in the visual experience or is it something else in addition to that? Thank you so much. Yes. Uh, you know what? The case about translation, it's you, you, I mean, it depends on, and, and I want to hear your thoughts about this. So there is a controversy and, and I'm going to focus on a, on a particular case, which is if, uh, if we should recommend, uh, for instance, philosophers to publish work in a particular language. So there is, um, there is a position or a view according to which we should publish analytic philosophy in English, just in English. And, and of course, there are many reasons to do so. And another view would say that based on principles such as, such as freedom, creativity, uh, critical attitudes, we should not recommend to, to, to publish in a particular language. So one might think that the most advisable thing to do is to, to produce analytic philosophy just in English. And I think even with language, there are particular norms that, that the uh, institutions introduce in order to, and, and of course, there are uh, plausible reasons to, to say that a particular language is, is, uh, is the most suitable way to, to discuss analytic philosophy, that you can go anywhere in the world and, and, and you can uh, present your work and, and discuss your work if you're doing it in English, unlike other languages. But still, there is the question of whether, of whether having or conducting research in a different language is advisable, is advisable. So, so I, I, I understand your case, but I don't think that even in the case of, of, of translation is, is that obvious that, that yes, the, does it make this, Right, right, right. So even the whole point, I mean, I talked about the alteration point as being kind of alterating or corrupting, but it, it seems like what you're bringing to mind, even making the decision of doing it or, or, or the act of doing it, not even taking consideration, just alteration it, it, you know, itself, the choice or the moral choice and all that stuff is also in, inherent in, in, in the corruption, or at least you're, you're thinking about corruption. That's interesting. So let's talk, let's bring us this all together, the visual experience of social institution and corruption. So in, in your work, you, you kind of talk about two social institutions and how corruption is there. And so I want to kind of break that up for the, for the listeners to understand. So, so the first social institution that you highlight 
is the university, and you kind of alluded to this, and you focus particularly visually on the university seal. Tell us, how do we see corruption by looking at this visual material? I have been thinking a lot about this, and 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 so what I, in order to to study the visual and the social uh, possibilities of corruption in university and in other social institutions, I have focused on on visual and artistic material. Uh, I'm interested in in the visual resources that that social institutions used to present themselves. For instance, how we see that university uses visual resources to present division of professions, hierarchical structures. And in my work, I have been using, I have been drawing to uh, the visual mark of, uh, of the university, which is the logotype or seal that the university introduces. And in a way, it's, it's like the visual mark of the university, the logotype or, or the seal. And, and I have been drawing on, on this uh, visual material because I, I think it is an interesting visual and artistic resource for, for the university because, because it reflects a preoccupation or a concern that the university puts in itself. So most universities, most public and private universities observe some, so, some form of regulation regarding the reproduction of their logos and seals. And, and they adopt authorization procedures to ensure uh, that the use of, of, of their visual marks reflects the standards and values that are, that are very important for, for the university's well-being and that it seeks to uphold. So I consider, I consider all these of, of logotypes and seals, and, and I, consider, I consider two cases. One, in one case, the logotype or, or the seal follows all the, uh, all the rules that the university introduces in order to, to reproduce the logotype or the seal. And this would be the ideal case of the logotype or the seal. And the second case I consider is the corruption of the ideal, the corruption of, of the logotype. And that would be a case in which the user of the logotype does not follow the rules to reproduce the visual mark. So that would be a case of, of corrupting the logotype of the university. So one way of, of understanding this, and I draw, to this, I draw on this material to introduce one definition of corruption, which is divergence from the ideal and the ideal itself. So corruption would not be, would be not only divergence from the ideal, but also the ideal itself. So how is these, uh, these material and these procedures and rules connected with, with our visual experiences? So suppose that, that uh, you observe the rules in order to reproduce the logotype or the seal, and you, you become a visual expert on how we see that the logotype or, or the visual mark should look. So you have that particular experience and, and, and you might say that by becoming an expert on, on, on the procedures and the rules, uh, you, would have, you would be able to visually experience the logotype or the visual mark in, in the correct way, in the accurate way. You also have, uh, on the other hand, you, you, you have a case in which by not being an expert on, on the procedure or, or the rules to reproduce the logotype, in that case, you would not visually experience the visual mark in an accurate way. 
so that there would be a substantial difference between one visual experience in which you become an expert and you know about the rules of how to reproduce the logotype. And in another case, you would your experience would not be accurate given that you are not an you you are not you're not following the rules or the procedures in order to to reproduce the um, or to recognize visually the logotype or, or the visual mark. I with with this material, uh, what I'm trying to do is to think about the opposition between one case and the other. To to think about the opposition between a case that does not corrupt the visual mark and and the case that corrupts the visual mark. In one case, you know the rules and you are able to to visually recognize the visual mark that follows all the rules. And in in the other case, you are not visually, you are not able to recognize visually a visual mark that follows the, the rules or the procedures to reproduce the mark because you're not an expert. You, you don't know about the rules that, that you should follow or the guidelines that you should follow to reproduce the, the university logo. I think that the problem of, of university arises in, in these two instances because, because of the following. So we might think that the knowledge that is produced by the university would give us all, all the visual, all uh, in, in. Given my interest, I'm, I'm, I'm just focusing on on visual information. But in, in principle, we would think, well, if we if we gain all the visual expertise, then we would be able to recognize the the authentic visual mark because because. Given that we know the guidelines, given that we have practiced the guidelines, we would be able to to separate one instance that follows the rules and, and one instance that does not follow the rule. So my my uh, the problem that I identify with this view is that the very guidelines and and the very rules introduced to to use uh, the visual mark are corrupt and they are corrupt because. The very, the very uh, learning, the very uh, practice, the very following rules precludes us from seeing the potentialities that that we would create if we would not follow the un- the university rules or the guidelines introduced by the university. I I think this this problem is connected with the possibility of doing of providing um, a critical space in university. So so we think we think well universities is is the setting in which we aim to provide our community with with critical skills and we want to give them all the potentialities all the possibilities to make a critique however by introducing rules of how is it that we should use knowledge how is it that we should use the visual mark in, in my uh, by, by considering my case we it's it's uh, the problem or or the question of whether it is possible to do to have a critical attitude inside university arises uh, uh, this is a very long answer to your question <laughs> no problem because i think that i think this sets up a, a very interesting framework or at least something that i want to contrast so that's the that's the institution of of, of university and i want to i'm going to 
kind of present to you a, another example for you to analyze. This is not in your work, but this is another kind of an example for you to analyze. So I wonder if I can just put you on the spot and ask you to consider the institution of government. So a few months ago, maybe a year ago, maybe two years ago, I don't remember. It's been so long since the last election. But there was an image of the 45th president inauguration, and it didn't show many people there at the inauguration in comparison to uh, inaugurations in which it was filled to capacity. And there was certain articles that were published that said that after the president complained, there was another photo that was produced by photographers of the White House. And this, this was an edited picture. And this edited picture, in contrast to the original picture, showed full attendance. So my, my question to you is, can we see corruption in the second picture? And if we can, if we cannot, does this too challenge us to understand corruption in a different way? And if so, how? So along with, with university and along with university, government is, is the organization that, that interests me the most. So thank you for putting me on the spot. So the, to, to, um, to pose the problem of what is made visible and whatnot and, and who decides what, what is it that should be made visible and whatnot is a useful way to examine the theme of the visuality of corruption in government. I think that we see corruption in the second image, but also in the first one. Mm, how so? I mean, again, I, I'm thinking about corruption as and institutions, they, they provide tons of, of resources. The main problem that I want to address is, is whether the sense in which we can think about the opposition between what is corrupted and what is not corrupted by, by considering the rules and, and the procedures and the norms uh, introduced by social institutions. So in the, in the altered image, we see, we see corruption because, because the image was modified after, after U.S. president's complaint. He complained the image was, was altered, and, and it seems more straightforward to say that, that we see corruption in the second image. However, I think that in the first image, we also experience corruption because so there is there is this uh, claim according to which photographs they have the, the aspect of or, or they have the character of, of providing evidence of, of a state of affairs so that so that when you see a photography, you by seeing a photography, you you are aware of, of visual information about a particular state of affairs so that photographs are constituted by or or one of the main elements of of or constitutive elements of photographs is that that they are transparent however and of course you you might think why why is it that photography gives us these uh or have this evidential or, or transparent character. And, and one, one obvious response is that because by, by using a mechanical process, a mechanical procedure, it doesn't matter what are the conditions in which the photograph is made. If, if you have a machine that reproduces a state of affairs, then, then the evidential or transparent character of the photograph is preserved. However, there, there is a debate about whether or, or how is it that we should understand transparency and, and the evidential character of photographs? I don't know if you've seen, if you watched uh, on Netflix, it is a documentary titled The B-Side, Elsa Dorfman Portrait Photography by uh, Morris, uh, Errol Morris. No, I haven't seen it. I, I strongly recommend it. 
so Elsa Dorfman, she's she's a she's an expert. She knows how how is it that machine uh, photographic machines uh, work, and and she's able to distinguish just by seeing a photograph what is the the photographic machine that that was used to to uh, to produce to produce that photograph, and. It is, it is certainly the case that the mechanical process plays a, a relevant role in, 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 in producing a particular photograph or, or, or another photograph. So, so it does play a role. However, Elsa Dorfman uh, says that or holds the, the view that photography, that we should not understand photography as, as providing us with truths or that transparency or the evidential character of, of photography, uh, that we should think about this character in terms of the relationship that, uh, that the producer and the state of affairs that is, that is uh, reproduced by a photography, how is it that they are connected? How is it that they are linked? So, so that's why I'm saying that the first fo- photograph, that also in the first photograph we see corruption, it, it seems that um, uh, this this uh, evidential or transparent character of photographs should not be, or at least there are reasons to think that that we should not be completely committed to to the idea that that when you see a photograph, you are seeing a state of affairs independently of the intentions of the photograph of the photographer or uh, independently of, of the context in which the photograph was produced. This is very helpful. It, it's, it, it's, it's quickly kind of changed the way I, I think about photographs. And it, it even changes the way, I mean, we kind of knew this in some way when it comes to social media, since Instagram is the pho- photography or the photo kind of platform about how people put filters on, on things. And we think it's the filter that makes the image corrupt or even the positioning. You see how some people position their bodies. And we, will, we, we may quick to say that that's an instance of corruption. But it seems as if any picture that, that you post in some ways is an example. If we're, if we're sticking with this photography point that you're making, that any uh, picture that we put on, on social media in some sense is corrupt. Would you, would you say that? I think that Elsa Dorfman She's a professional photographer. She she's a truly expert of photographic machines, and 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 I I I think that that is the case. I think that, uh, or at least at least my there is a controversy about that matter, or or it is not fully clear that just by seeing a photograph, we immediately have an accurate representation of the state. Right, of right, right. It seems based on this argument that we can also add paintings to that example, particularly kind of realist paintings, because realist paintings is also in some way a reproduction of a scene in some way, in, in the same way in which photography would be. Do you, do you agree with that? You know what? It's, uh, it's, it's interesting that you're mentioning these, these other cases because so uh, philosophers of photography, they think that one way to distinguish uh, between photography and another and, and other representations such as, as drawings or paintings is by drawing on the mechanical process. In, in, in photography, you, you have the, the photographic machine. 
in in drawings and and paintings you you have other tools but the the uh the photographic machine is not present so they think that by drawing on the machine you can distinguish between between the transparency of photographies and the transparency that you might uh, gain by by visually experience a drawing or a painting so but if it is the case that that if we follow Elsa Dorfman, I, I think that if we want to distinguish uh, photographies and and drawings or paintings, uh, we should we should draw on on more elements that the photographic machine is not enough to uh, to distinguish the representation that we have in photography and the representation that we have in drawings or or paintings and yes i i think i think that is another interesting problem how is it that we should distinguish between these different kinds of of uh, of representation i so for instance errol errol morris the documentary maker of this piece elsa dorfman dorfman's uh, of piece he's an skeptical he he's an skeptical about the information that we gain via our visual experiences I, I would not say that I'm hold an skeptical view about our visual experiences. The only thing that I'm that I want to point out is that it is not fully clear. It is it is not fully clear uh, the distinction between having having a corrupt instance or or seeing a corrupt instance and and uh, seeing a non-corrupt instance, given. All these, all these uh, norms, all these rules, all these um, procedures, guidelines that our culture, that our institutions uh, introduce in order to see what we see. So I, I think it is, it is uh, very problematic, and and I, I think we we should, or at least it is, it is. Uh, I think it is a plausible or a way of thinking about about the visuality of of social institutions or or uh, the visuality of, of corrupt instances. Okay. So you've taken the, the initiative from several projects to translate philosophical work from, from English into Spanish. Why is translation important for you? Yes. So I, although I, I, I live in the U.S., I have, uh, I, and I'm very interested in, in preser- preserving my my exchange with collectivities, philosophical and and, and non philosophical communities in Mexico. And I, in translation of any any work, not only philosophical work, but any work, is not accessory or secondary in Mexico. For instance, in order to be able to learn about debate uh, on various topics. We, we need translations in order to, to have access to a particular set of knowledge. We, we, need, we need translations. So some of, some of my undergraduate students, if, if they don't have the translation in Spanish, they would not access or they would not have a means to access to a particular discussion. So, and I also like the idea of corrupting a text I, I think that I see 
many possibilities in, in transforming or altering text in, in this way, in, in, in making translations. Of course, I'm, I'm not interested. Of course, I mean, given, given the context, people would be more interested in having a literal translation. And, and, and that would make sense. It's possible to ask for a literal translation. But I, I think that even in that case, even, even in literal translation, I think by altering the language and, and, and more than that, resorting, uh, drawing on, on idioms, on the various ways in which we speak Spanish, I think, I think this, this uh, alteration, is, it, you cannot help but to, to, uh, to corrupt text when you're translating from English into Spanish. And, and so it has, I, I think that I'm interested in corrupting philosophical text and I don't know, Maisha, I think that when I say that undergraduate students, how is it that, that they uh, can access discussions uh, happening in other languages? I'm, in a way, I'm also saying that we're not exactly, act, we don't have our access, via, our access to these debates via translations. It, it is also a, a corrupt access. And so I, I think um, that that's, I, I would say those two reasons are, are important for me to, to translate works from English into Spanish. I wish my English was good enough to make corruption the other way around. <laughs> I wish. <laughs> yes. You talked about this before when you talked about your research interests and corruption is, is, is grounded in, in being from Mexico. And I, I wonder if you could say just a little bit more about how being from Mexico has influenced you as a philosopher. Yes, I have been reading Emilio, Emilio Uranga. I don't know if, if you have heard about, about this uh, Mexican philosopher. So he published in, I think, in 1950s, a book titled Análisis del Ser del Mexicano, Analysis of the Mexican Being, would be a translation. And, and he says that Mexican existence is, is constituted by one way of translating it, this, this term is, it, it is accidentalidad, accidentality, which includes negative traits of, of Mexicans. He identifies being Mexican with, with the property of accidentality. And he has these, these very interesting view of, of how we see that or what would be the, the way to become more humans. And, 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 he, and he says he holds, in order to become more human, we should recognize this human accidentality or these negative traits. I think I think about corruption in terms of of Uranga's accidentality. So that in order to become more human, uh, we should recognize the, the potentialities or possibilities of corruption. In a way, what he was saying is that in order to become more human, you should be more similar or, or you should become or you should leave existence as 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 Mexicans. Do. And and I think I think maybe I, I don't have a, a, a negative or I don't think corruption if if uh, if, uh, if if I may if I may uh, co- corruption is not a, is not a bad word because I see all the potentialities that or I want to reflect on the potentialities of of, of our negative traits and to your question how is it that being Mexican has influenced the way I do philosophy. I, I think that, I don't know, having 
yeah, having these these uh, these ordinary and and practical interaction with corruption. Also, I think that. I mean, the resources, uh, we might think that, that uh, and I'm thinking, I'm thinking when, when I was a graduate student and, and when I, when I uh, went to the U.S., I, I thought that the resources that students had were, were very different. And, and I mean, just to be clear, I mean, you were at Harvard. <laughs> and so that's a, that's a very different reality for so many people. But I see, I see the comparison. Just want to put that out there. I understand the analogy, though. <laughs> yes. And I'm not interested in or that interested in, in uh, which context is better or, or, or which context, context is worse or, or what would be the, the best scenario in order to do graduate work. But I, I think that by having like these very limited resources, I think I think they affect the way you do philosophy. And by limited resources, I mean, for instance, not having the structure, like sophisticated structures. I mean, or or the fact not having English proficiency, for instance. Or I think that by the resources that that we, that I had, I think they definitely affected and influenced uh, the way I see philosophy and why I see that I'm interested in corruption. Right. And it also makes sense of, of also why you're interested in accessibility in regards to translation. It makes sense for a lot of things. This is interesting. Laura, it's been a, it's been a pleasure chatting with you. Thank you so much for taking the time out uh, to chat with me all the way from Coratero, Mexico. I really enjoyed our conversation. Muchas gracias, Maisha. <laughs> <nada>, <laughs> For more access to the Unmute Podcast, subscribe on iTunes or head over to the website at www.unmutepodcast.co. There you can get more information about our guests, participate in giveaways, as well as learn more about people, books, and concepts mentioned in today's episode. Until next time, remember that your silence will not protect you. Listen, think, Speak, the world will be different as a result.